Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be together. I see some uh, maybe newer faces. If you are new today, my name's Phil, the lead pastor here, and uh, grateful that we can worship together. Would you join me in a word of prayer? God, I, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you. The flowers will fade, the grass will wither, but the word of our Lord will endure forever. So Lord, would you meet us in the reading of your word? Would you increase? Would you be proclaimed? We pray in your name. Amen. I uh, came across a funny comedy bit this week where people were invited to send in funny things that they had seen on the internet just to take a screen grab of uh, something that was a little bit off but a little bit funny. And I I uh, wanted to share a couple of these. This, this first one was uh, when someone was asked to leave a review for Fernan, uh, Vernon's funeral home. It says, does this place offer curbside pickup, yes or no? And so it's just those kind of things people were asked to send in. This next one, I, I don't know who was in charge of the marketing plan, uh, but this was an advertisement for a haircut place for kids. And uh, if you look closely at this image, it says, uh, we cut kids. <laughs> and there's a picture of a kid screaming just in the background. Now, um, as a, a parent of young kids who has taken them to the barbers, I can attest to the accuracy of that image, uh, but I don't know if I would choose that for my, my particular marketing campaign. Well, there, there was one image that really resonated with me as I was reflecting on our text today, and it was an image of someone who had done a Google search for a fancy Italian restaurant called the Pizzeria de Franco. And on the Google search, below the reviews, below the map, there were uh, some images of highlights of the menu. And I don't know if you can see this that well, but the first one is this amazing dessert, panna cotta, but the second highlight was their carbonated water. And I, I just had this, this funny image of someone going and, and spending $200 on a, a meal and, and just raving about the water. It was just wonderful. It, it implies someone who's missed the point. They didn't really understand the, the feast that was before them. We're continuing our series today called A Place at the Table. We're looking at all the feasts in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is having meals with people. In our text today, there are two characters that are very uh, much having a different experience at this meal. There's a contrast here between Simon the Pharisee and this sinful woman. And what I want to suggest to you as we look at this text is that Simon comes away from this encounter with nothing much more than a cold cup of water. He has missed the feast of God's grace that is before him. Whereas this other woman, this sinful woman, experiences, as Paul will say, the full measure of the love of God. What I want to explore today is how we might learn from these two characters. And first, I want to explore Simon and learn from him some of the things that might be blocking us from experiencing the fullness of God's love. Some of the things that might cause us to walk away from the scripture feeling as if we have this watered-down, empty experience, this cold cup of water spirituality. And instead of that, I want us to learn and look at this woman and see how she approaches Jesus and discover how we might have a more receptive posture to the gifts that God wants to pour out on our feet. And I believe, friends, that God is in our midst here. This isn't just an academic exercise, that God wants to meet us with gifts of forgiveness, 
a renewed capacity to love one another. He wants to send us forth in peace today. And my prayer is that we would come and learn how to be receptive to these gifts today. And so we we begin by looking at Simon the Pharisee. And I, I believe Simon actually is seeking Jesus. He, he has some curiosity. He has some questions. The fact that a Pharisee would invite Jesus to his home came with some risk. Jesus was not looked highly upon in the Pharisee group. Uh, when Nicodemus in John 3 comes to Jesus, another Pharisee, he comes at night. He's trying to do it secretively. And so there's some risk that Simon is taking here. He's clearly curious. And yet, he's also holding Jesus at arm's length. Our text tells us that he doesn't go through the normal acts of hospitality in this day and age. It amounts to what would be a social snub of Jesus. And I wonder if he's trying to cue to his friends, you know, I'm interested, let's just give him a hearing, but don't worry, I'm not too close with this guy. We're going to kind of hold him at a distance. So Simon is seeking, and yet he comes away from this encounter missing who Jesus is. And I want us to notice some of the things that block him from really discovering Christ. Some of the ways he approaches it. And the the first block that I see for Simon is that he approaches Jesus in a very presumptuous way. Presumptuous way. He presumes to already have a pretty good picture of who God is and who Jesus is. And we we notice this in the text. Uh, His thoughts are given to us, and it says, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Can you hear the presumption in that? Simon is saying, you know, I know what God would value. If he was a true prophet, he would know who this woman is and wouldn't allow it. We also notice in his language that he's assumed Jesus is a prophet and later in the text, a teacher. But we're going to discover at the, at the end of the story, Jesus forgives the woman's sins, which is equated with claiming to be God. This is an act that only God would forgive sin. And so they are missing who Jesus is. We assume he's a teacher. We assume he's a prophet, but not a very good one, overlooking the fact that God might actually have more to reveal to him, that he is, in fact, the Messiah they are looking for, that he is preaching about this kingdom that's going to turn things on its head, that those on the margins will be brought into the center And I think the challenge in this for us is to maintain enough openness to the the fact that God might have more to teach us, to not presume that we have God completely figured out, he's all defined in our nice theological boxes. Could it be that, like Simon, sometimes we assume too much of God and don't have an open posture? When Nicodemus, the other Pharisee, comes to Jesus, Jesus says, if you really want to see and enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Now, this is a metaphor that sometimes has been a little bit tarnished in how we use it today, but to be born again really is to assume the posture of a child. It's a humble metaphor where we come with a sense of wonder, not knowing it all. We give up the adult pretensions that we have it all figured out. And Simon is not coming in with that open posture. He presumes to have Jesus figured out. The second thing I I notice in this text about Simon is that he comes very prideful. 
One of the blocks to receiving God's grace is that he is filled with a sense of pride. He doesn't think that he needs a savior. This is a quote from Scott Jose in his commentary, and I appreciate this. He says, Simon felt no need to anything in the way of forgiveness. He'd made his own way his whole life, thank you very much, with the Pharisee plan, and was therefore gratefully beholden to precisely no one. (laughs) You see that attitude in Simon, that the sinner is that woman, but he because of his piety, because of his religious standing, doesn't really need a savior. He's interested in a religious conversation, but he's created this line of who's a sinner and who isn't. The problem, and actually the irony, is that Simon in this scene is not acting very holy. The way he treats this woman is is with contempt. He doesn't model a, a sense of love for neighbor that is central to the Pharisees' understanding of the law, right? There's this irony that he doesn't really recognize his own brokenness. It is glossed over by this veneer of piety and rule following. This is a a quote from Timothy Keller, which I found helpful, and he says that sin and evil are self-centeredness and pride that lead to oppression against others. But there are two forms of this. One form is being very bad and breaking all the rules, and the other form is being very good and keeping all the rules and becoming self-righteous. Jesus goes on to use this parable about the two debtors. And what I want us to notice in this parable is that while there's different levels of debt, they are both equally indebted. There's an equalizing in this metaphor, in this parable. So we read in Luke 7, 41, two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. Neither of them, notice that, neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of them both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, there's a lot in this parable that we're going to look at, but one of the things that I want us to notice is that there is this equal uh, indebtedness between the two in this parable. And Jesus is communicating to the Pharisee Simon that he equally is unable to pay the debt that his sin has created for him. Now, the problem is that the, the sin in Simon's life is a more subtle sin. It's like the respectable sins that don't get much airtime. It's not very public. Timothy Keller uses a kind of a graphic metaphor, but it's helpful to just help us understand like the equal playing field for us all, the scriptural principle that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And, and so Keller says, imagine that you're sleeping out and you're camping. And in the middle of the night, a poisonous spider crawls in your ba- bag and bites you and you die. In the morning, you're found, and uh, there you are, and you're dead. Now, he says, imagine another scene, and this is a more intense one. You're out camping again, but this time, a lion finds you at night and mauls you, and you are also dead. Bear with me. It's a weird metaphor. (laughs) Keller says this. In the morning, the scenes are going to look very different, right? One will be just kind of this guy laying in his bed, and we'll shake him and and find out that he's dead. The other one's going to be graphic and dramatic. But here's the thing, friends. They're both dead. 
And Keller says it this way, one is pretty dead and one is ugly dead, but they are both dead. And and that's really what Jesus is getting at in this metaphor and what the scriptures teach us is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of dead. The promise, the problem is that Simon is pretty dead, right? And and there's an ability to gloss over it because he can point to these external things of status and the things he's accomplished. C.S. Lewis once said it's actually more dangerous for the self-righteous man sitting at the front of the church than the prostitute at the back of the church because the one at the front doesn't realize that he's in need of a savior. And so the pride is blocking Simon from his openness and his receptivity to the beautiful forgiveness that Jesus wants to offer, the release from the sin. And so there is pride. The last thing I notice for Simon, this last block, is that he also has a very impersonal approach to God. A very impersonal approach to God. In contrast to the woman who comes pouring out her heart, weeping, worshiping, Simon snubs Jesus. There's no affection. He keeps him at arm's length. Simon models for us an approach to Jesus that rejects this religion of the heart for a religion of the head. Simon wants a seminar. He wants a discussion. Let's see if this rabbi has something to teach me. But in so doing, he misses the point of who Jesus really is. He thinks Jesus is just this great teacher. Let's have a conversation. But again, we're going to hold it at arm's length. We'll we'll keep God on my terms. Thank you very much. I, I think this is actually a common block in our day and age today. It's very common for people to say that, you know, I think Jesus is a good teacher. He has some moral teachings that are worth listening to. But let's keep this whole God thing kind of off to the side. I don't want to embrace that part of the scriptures. <clears throat> Let's cut out the miracles. Let's cut out the things that don't really fit what I like. We just want a good discussion. Tell me how to live and I'll go about doing it. I don't want a religion where I let my hair down, where I weep, where I pour out my heart. I want to just have a conversation. Maybe that's something that resonates with you. Maybe you find yourself coming, just kind of holding God at a bit of distance today, and that's sometimes normal. That's where we are culturally right now. Can I point out a little bit of an irony, though, in those who would like to say, I like Jesus' moral teaching, but let's just kind of put this miracle on hold, this God thing on hold, this worship thing on hold. Again, to C.S. Lewis, he says, The irony of those who say that Jesus was just a great moral teacher must then concede that half the time he was lying. (laughs) Which isn't very moral, is it? Right? Because most of the times, Jesus is claiming to be God. When he forgives sins, that amounts to claiming divinity. So we can't have it both ways. (laughs) Is he a moral teacher? And if so, how do you account for the fact that You're assuming he's lying half the time in the Gospels. I've shared this quote before uh, from Carl Rayner, but he says this, that knowing God is more important than knowing about God. That, That God wants us not to just have our concepts and our understanding figured out. He wants us to encounter him, to know him very personally. When I came to know Jesus, I, uh, sorry, I did that again. Julie will love this. I just called Julie Jesus. Uh, but when I came to know Julie, right, she's not here. Darn. Okay, I'll have to show her online. 
When I, when I came to meet Julie, again, I didn't say, give me a fax report and like, you know, how can I say your name in Greek and just kind of get these ideas. Like, I, I know her through encounter as a person, and that's how God is encountered, friends, by this woman. Not just this idea, this teacher, but this living God that wants to love and forgive and bring you into relationship. And so how do we respond to these blocks that Simon has? And maybe it's naming some things for us. Maybe there are some blocks in our heart that we, whether it's through presumption or pride or this impersonal faith, we're struggling to receive what God wants to offer. And here's the antidote, friends. If we see Simon in us today, Jesus tells Simon, look at this woman. See this woman. Simon, do you see her? Other translations, Jesus says to Simon, look at this woman. This woman shows us another path towards Jesus. Another way to approach Jesus that will leave us not with this empty cup of water, but with this feast of grace. We notice that she leaves filled to the full measure of God. And so, friends, how does she come? Let us look at this woman. And we notice a very different approach, don't we? We see a woman who does not come in pride, but in humility. She has come to the end of herself through the brokenness in her past. She is under no illusion that she doesn't need a savior, right? She's aware of her need, and so she comes weeping, seeking, ready to receive from God. She must have heard Jesus speak. She must have heard his reputation of one who offered forgiveness and grace, and she had a longing in her heart, and she came seeking that in humility. We see a woman who comes in vulnerability. It took great risk for her to step before these religious leaders to break social customs to let her hair down. That was breaking all the cultural taboos. She risked scorn. She risked rejection. See, she risked even more of a tarnished reputation. But she took that risk of vulnerability, acknowledging her need, acknowledging her longing for a savior. And sometimes, friends, reaching out to God in need is a vulnerable thing. Because it requires us to acknowledge that we need some help, that we have missed the mark somehow. And it's normal for us to be like Simon and to try and deny it and cover it with a veneer of the things we have done because it takes vulnerability to say, I am not enough in and of myself. And I want to encourage those of us today who perhaps, if we're honest, are realizing we have come to the end of ourselves, that maybe we've failed in some way or another, we're feeling and carrying the shame of that, that this perhaps is an opportunity for an important spiritual breakthrough in your life. To encourage you to take the risk of acknowledging your need. I was meeting with my spiritual director this week, and he often tells me that we we often mistake backwards movement, or we we mistake uh, what is really spiritual progress as backwards movement. And so we think we're going backwards because we're making a mess of things and we're failing and we're bumping into our brokenness. We say, oh God, here I'm a Christian 20 years later and I'm still going through that. And we think we're going backwards. But if we're open to the grace of God, this might be actually a step forward in our faith. Because we are coming to that beautiful beatitude place where we realize we are poor in spirit. And so the kingdom of God can break in. 
We realize our meekness, and so that we can inherit what God has for us. We realize that we are hungering and thirsting, and so we can be filled. Friends, can we take the risk today of just saying, I need a Savior? Because here is the good news in our text. Here is the good news in our text. This woman risked vulnerability, but God met her in that. And the text says that he now turns his back on Simon, turns to this woman, and looks upon her lovingly, and speaks this word of forgiveness, and sends her out in peace. And I believe that God meets us today. He wants to turn towards you. He wants to look upon you in love and forgiveness. We can risk saying we need a Savior. Why? Because there is a Savior who has come to you. He wants to send you forth, released from the shame, released from the pain, equipping you to love others well, to be sent out in peace. Can we just notice the feast that this woman received, this feast of grace? We we notice what this woman receives. Simon goes away pretty empty. He gets a seminar. He gets an object lesson. But look at what the woman encounters. She encounters forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven, Jesus says, past tense. It's not, here's a plan that you can go and act so that you will find forgiveness through your good works, right? That's not the word. Your sins have been forgiven. I want us to notice this Greek word for forgiveness. Again, Scott Jose in his commentary says this. He says, the idea of forgiveness is closely tied with the idea of release, and letting go as stemming from the word for forgiveness, which is aphesis. That's the Greek word in this text. And in this story, it's hard to deny that among all the things that Jesus' forgiveness of this woman means, one meaning is that she is released from being stuck to the category of sinner into which the Pharisees and others have permanently pigeonholed her. Isn't that a beautiful gift that Jesus wants to forgive us and in so doing release us from the shame, from the identity that says we are no good, from the regrets that we keep playing in our heads? Jesus wants to release us from that, give us a new identity, and free us through his forgiving grace today. I believe Jesus turns to you, looks upon you with that forgiving gaze, and wants you to receive that today. What else does this woman encounter? We see that she encounters a renewed capacity to love others. A renewed capacity to love others. We go back to the parable, and Jesus says, the person who is forgiven much will love much. This word for love is this big word, this word agape. This woman, through this encounter, is now equipped to be an agent of grace and love and sacrifice towards others. Are you struggling to other, love people well right now? Jesus wants to, to empower you and equip you in that as you turn and receive his grace. And the last thing we notice, and there's other things, but we see this commission. Woman, your sins are forgiven. Go out in peace. There's a freedom from the anxiety and now an invitation into peace. The Greek word here is not go in peace, it's go into peace. Step into a world where you will find peace along the way. There is, there's peace for you. So friends, I, I don't know where you're at today. 
But I know that I, I, I want to leave today filled again to the full measure of the love of God to encounter the forgiveness, the release, the renewed ability to love, the, the peace that God wants to offer us. And if that's your longing, I think the invitation for us is to look at this woman, see how she approaches Jesus, to come to a place where we acknowledge our indebtedness, but also discover the great cost by which God wiped that away. As he went to the cross, nailing our sins on the cross, friends, he looks upon you today, and I believe he wants to speak these words over you that you might leave filled with freedom and hope and grace. Would you join me as prayer, in prayer now as we come to this table? God, I think it's fitting that we now come to this feast that is presented before us. We are forgetful people. We do uh, the sac- We come to the sacraments because you said, do this in remembrance of me. Lord, some of us, I believe today, need to taste and see that you are good. So would you meet us in this table, in this sacrament, with these visible words point to the deep inward grace that you want to do in our hearts today. We pray in your name. Amen.